Welcome to Best Served, a podcast recognizing unsung hospitality heroes. Join Chef Jensen Cummings as he chops it up with industry leaders about the humans who've impacted their lives and careers. From childhood guides, to ass-kicking mentors, to the team members in the trenches that make it all happen. Help us celebrate these rock stars by sharing our show and nominating your own unsung hospitality heroes. Connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Now here is your host. What's up, everybody? Jensen Cummings here. Thank you for tuning in. Today I'm talking with Jeffrey Harris, chef owner of Category 5 in Cincinnati, Ohio. Jeff, thanks for taking some time. Thank you, guys, man. Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. I am a big fan of Cincinnati. I got an opportunity to get out there. The OTR on the Rhine is blowing up. What a great scene there is there. So I'm excited to talk contemporary about what's going on there. But we always like to start at the beginning, that origin story. So you are from, I'm going to say multiple ways, New Orleans, which is not how you say it. New Orleans, yeah. which is how it's okay to say it, but really it's Nolens, right? There you go. No, and that's tell us what that represents. Too. I mean, that's a, that's an iconic place to be from. Yeah, well, like we call it New Orleans. Like you know, we don't put the NA on it like most people do. Uh, but yeah, but it's uh, it's home for me, and also uh, it's the place that kind of kickstarted everything that's happening in my life right now. Um, like I said, I come from a cooking family, from everybody in my family cooks, but my grandma and my mom are the backbone of what made me a cook, what made me love to cook. You know, I've been on the stove since I was four years old, and uh, my grandmother told me uh, she's going to teach me how to scramble eggs, because if I meet a woman who can't cook, I can feed myself, you know? And she's trying to make you uh, independent. Yeah. Yeah, four years old, standing on the chair next to the hot stove, you know? And uh, and I learned. And from that point on, I mean, I always watched cooking shows coming up. and was always intrigued what I saw on TV because what was on TV was stuff I'd never seen and stuff that wasn't going on in my house. And my mom wasn't cooking that, and neither was my grandmother. And to my mom and my grandmother, those were just fancy people food, you know? And But it was always intriguing to me, so... I always pursued that and I always wanted different. I never wanted to stay with the same. Um, it's kind of like an OCD. Like I don't like to repeat. I don't like to constantly do the same thing, but yeah. that was. Isn't it, isn't it interesting how they said fancy people food and then you go, okay, I can see that because of the way it's presented and, yeah. and, and maybe the level of ingredients, whatever it might be. Then you get into that lane and you go, you know what? This is just, the humble food reinterpreted because it all comes from like humble food from humble beginnings. So much of what we cook uh, is that. And sometimes, sometimes we try to make it too fancy. Sometimes we overdo it and chef it up too much. And it's interesting how it was like, it just speaks to your soul and then you find a way to riff on it, which I think is really interesting. But grandma and mom were cooking exactly the same food some of the times just without the flair and more yeah. of the love still to this day like you know they're still telling me like what i should be doing if i'm gonna be doing new orleans food and you know trying to get me to do it their way you know but i said like i can't do that because like i mean i've learned i've grown and 
um, I should be able to show that. Like, you know, like when I come home, this is what I expect. You know, like I want I want to play like with everything on one plate. You know, like here I want to break that down and individually give it to people and teach people about why the food is what it is, you know? It's a true story. Now, you got into the industry at Garfield's Restaurant and Pub. I'm always yeah. fascinated with how we find our way into the industry. And for you, clearly, you knew what you were getting into from, from four years old at that hot stove. Talk about that first experience. Was it love at first sight? Because it's definitely different cooking with grandma than it is getting into, into the grind of the kitchen. Well, uh, it, it tell was us kinda, about that. It was, it was kind of easy because my mom was a kitchen manager. And um, I had a job with Ben and Jerry's also at the same time. And um, Garfield's was my full-time job, and I would do sell ice cream for Ben and Jerry's on the weekends, like for the Saints game or you had the Audubon Zoo or whatnot. And getting in there was just getting to learn how to operate myself in the kitchen. And my mom let me know right off the bat, like, she's like, don't call me mom in here. Call me Miss Wanda, like everybody else. And I was like, that's going to be hard. And I, I still don't call Miss Wanda. I still call her mom. No matter what, you are who you are to me. And, yeah, so jumping in, like, I kind of went head first. Um, I started out as a fry cook, and I always wanted to know, like, who's the top person wherever I'm at. That's that's just a competitive person to me. And this guy working the grill, he was the top dude in that. So my whole goal was I want to learn how to do grill. And by two and a half years, I was a kitchen manager there. And uh, they closed down the restaurant closed down in like 1996 the whole company it was kind of like an applebee's type thing and uh it was like some fast food they had a couple microwaves to kind of quickly get food out and stuff like that but at that time i wasn't uh i wasn't what where i saw the food that i was going to eventually start doing um because i started to uh really idolize emerald at that point because not only was he the man um, where I'm from, New Orleans, but everybody around the world knew who he was. So that was another thing that piqued my interest and also saw culinary from a different side and not make me hate what I was doing at Garfield's, but made me better at what I was doing at Garfield's, you know? Yeah, and speaking of Emerald and just, I mean, Commander's Palace, one of the most iconic restaurants in the country, maybe in the world, and you have, you know, Prude home, Legasse, and like also, even Tori McPhail is a is a friend now, and he's a, he's the chef yeah. there. Been there for a long time. Yeah, and, I know him, man. That's that's my guy, man. Him, uh, Chris Lynch, and everybody, you know, down yeah. there. But um, yeah, man, Commander's Palace is one of the hardest places to work. Also, that's what a lot of people don't know. Um, they always have a continuous ad in the paper. It never leaves the newspaper. They're always looking for cooks, and for you to survive there and grow there. You, you go through a grueling process of culinary uh, excellence from those guys. They're probably the most demanding kitchen I've never worked in. You know, I mean, just hearing stories and also knowing some of the higher-ups there and just kind of, you know, all right, I really got to switch my game up and, and get some discipline. And that's how I, that's what happened when I got to Emerald. I hear that. So you clearly had the chops. You had 
the pedigree from the family. You had the passion, the love for it from the family. So it was clear that you were on a path for sure. Now to detour a little bit, we always like to, to learn a, f- a couple interesting, fun things about everybody on the show. And, uh, and you wrote, I love this. You actually said that you are all about and in love with fast cars. Right away, I was like, oh, this dude's an adrenaline junkie. So a kitchen is perfect for him because the energy, the intensity is there. Uh, talk about cars uh, and you personally, but then also like, get, connect that dot for us because I'm sure you see yourself revving engines in the kitchen as well. Man, look, um, that's a whole nother interview. But by, uh, my love for cars came from my uncle, man. Um, my uncle and my grandfather. Um, my uncle had, like, uh, I don't know what year Chevelle it was, but I just knew every time he started it up, I can feel it. Like, you know? And you can hear it, the, the loud bubbling, crackling sound coming from that engine. And he would always peel out if I was watching him leave or something like that. And like, if he rode, if I rode in the car with him and if we had enough uh, road to kind of punch the gas a little bit, he'll put his hand on my chest and hit the gas. And I always loved what that felt like. And my grandfather had a truck that was almost just as fast or faster. And ever since then, like my love for fast cars, it's not, not so much, foreign cars or like uh those kind of cars but i love powerful cars everybody had like muscle cars and in the south that's a big thing like i want the old cutlass the 72 cutlass with the the big block in it and also uh i want to make sure that i have all my headers right and all my pistons are on point and my dual exhaust so you can hear every loud noise that comes from this engine through those pipes and that was one of my passions. I've never owned any of those cars yet, but I'm in pursuit. But I'm always that's what I'm that's what I'm into. And uh, one day my wife will let me have my car that I want and get dirty and have oil all over my hands. Enjoy that uh, fruit from the labor of my life. You know. I hear that and. For now, you're just getting dirty in the kitchen. And, and so that level of energy that, like, pulsing through you when that engine revs, do you, do you find yourself craving that and then finding that in the kitchen sometimes? Yeah, that's – I mean, I get like that when, like, when service is about to start. Like, I'm always, I'm always antsy about being set, like, and ready. You know, like, same, same with, uh, with doing very important stuff in my life. Like, you know, just being prepared for them and not just going in them blindly or not knowing if everything is uh, where it needs to be and what needs to be done is done. And I just like to be prepared for whatever I go into. So, like, service, like, like if we start service at 5 o'clock, I want to be ready at, like, 4.45. I want to take those last 15 minutes or whatever just to kind of go over everything, make sure we are all hitting on all bells and whistles and we're ready to go. And if it's not that way, then it's like uh, that almost not a panic, but a rush of like, all right, let's go start delegating like crazy, making sure stuff gets done. And we got this window of time to get it done. And if we pull together, we get it done. But I don't like to do that. I like to be ready. I don't like to be behind or, or do something that 
I don't think that's going to work if we're not ready, you know? So yeah. yeah. Mise en place is our religion yeah. for a reason, right? Yeah. Everything in its place is not just some shit you say. It's yeah. something you better live if you're going to survive in a kitchen and bring the best service every time. It's so. like, man, like many times I've been through, I didn't, even as a cook, like not even having uh, authority in the kitchen or anything, just I never was the guy that uh, I don't like people to tell me what to do or, or put some kind of weight on me because I'm slacking or I'm never this or I'm never that. And I always wanted to be the guy that, like, I want to be the example, if that makes better sense. I wanted people to know, like, like this guy's always ready. He's always making sure everybody else is and so on and so forth. But, like, I always wanted to be ready. I never wanted to be the guy, like, why are you going like, you know, why are you, why are you not this? Why is this not here? What? No. If this is my area, this is my world, this is my station, I'm owning it. That's it. And everybody else, once I'm done, then I can help everybody else get where we are, where I'm at. I hear that. So from the intensity of the kitchen to some chill moments at home, always learn a lot about people knowing what they eat and drink at home. I can tell you who you are. And, yeah. uh, and this was funny. I read this and I'm, I'm so into research. I always want to learn, learn, learn. Uh, however, I made a point not to learn what this was because I wanted to hear from the horse's mouth. Right. What is Delaware punch? Oh my God, that's like that's like the black version of Mountain Dew, if that makes sense. Um, it's not acidic like Mountain Dew. Um, it's a punch. It's a grape flavor punch, and I've only had it in New Orleans. I've never had it anywhere else. I can't get it up here in Cincinnati. Uh, I recently just went back to New Orleans a couple weeks ago, and I made sure I got some, and it's it's like Kool-Aid on steroids in a can, if that's a better description for it. But yeah, it's it's refreshing. I'm not a soda drinker, like talking about it, but I I can drink punch all day. You know? Yeah, there's those seriously iconic regional things. Right when you're yeah. talking about that, I was like, all right, that makes sense. It's like uh, cheer wine in some of the south. Yeah. With that, yeah. that stuff's crazy. Like that's like like carbonated grenadine. I got, I think <laughs> yeah. I got diabetes just from taking one sip when we were hitting the circuit in Atlanta. Yeah. Had my first cheer wine and it like blew my face off. So yeah, like, it, it's intense, man. It ain't like. Cause like I see like a lot of people use it in cooking too. Like it's either gonna be like a gastric or somebody gonna reduce it down because it has that sugar content to make that uh, syrupy, saucy look for it. But yeah, man, it's super sweet. But also like Delaware Punch is not not that sweet. Either. But it's really it's really good. It's a, it's always something I always want to drink. Like that was my go to besides like a. Big shot pineapple or something like that, you know. Uh, it, it instantly made me think of like Chappelle at the sugar water purple. Like it's just like there you go, there it's, you go. yeah. It's it's a must have. Those nostalgic things that we have. It's so funny. People, some people will have that and be like, "Yep, I get it." And other people are like, "Are you kidding me? This is right. like..." And that's you know that's nostalgia. That's what it's all about. You just grew up on it whatever that is from city to city, from region to region. So I'm, I'm all about it. I always say like, it doesn't matter if it's my thing. I just love people who have a thing, whatever yeah. that is. I'm, I'm 
all about it. So love that. You also have patent Hoff beef patties. Uh, tell us why that is such a, like a comfort food for you. It's my favorite po' boy, man. Um, and the meat itself was, is used in so many different like recipes throughout New Orleans food as well. Um, but like anytime, like I would go home, uh, before I go see anybody, I would go to jeans and I miss that. I can't go to jeans anymore because it closed down, but, um, I would get a hot sausage pool boy, like, and it's, it's a spicy sausage. Um, it's fatty, it's greasy. Um, it fits right with the bread. It, it's one of those products that's always been consistent. Like it, the taste never changed. It's still the same, the same people that are making it. That recipe is probably under lock and key somewhere, but, um, but that is probably the best sausage or ground meat I've ever eaten in my life. And, um, it's, it's like a beef, a beefy, spicy version of like a chorizo patty, basically. And, uh, it's amazing. It's, it's spicy, but it's not hot. Like you can eat a whole sandwich and won't feel like you burned your lips off or anything like that. And it's one of those foods like, New Orleans is a drinking city, so like, like that would be the po' boy most people would get after a night of drinking or whatever because of the the bread and the the meat itself. I guess it kind of coats your stomach for alcohol or whatever the may be, but that was the go-to, and that's one of the foods that my grandmother put in her gumbo. Uh, what else? It would be in like certain gravies, like if my grandmother made like a like gravy for biscuits or something like that, it will be that, you know? Um, and it will be like spicy and, and awesome and great. But that's my, that's my go-to, man. This is exactly why I ask people about what they, they eat and drink when they're at home, because I so badly want to hang out with you and have <laughs> patent hot beef patty po'boys and Delaware punch. Right now. Um, it's just like, because no matter how much I enjoy it, I'm yeah. going to enjoy that experience because you're going to fucking love it. And I'm just going to yeah. see the intensity and passion on your face. And that's what breaking bread with people is all about. So yeah, I man. absolutely yeah. love you sharing with the, that with us. I'm hoping a couple of people will have a nostalgic moment. They go, yes, Delaware Punch. I haven't had that in a minute. Or somebody like, will say, I got to go seek that out. So I really yeah. like hearing that. We've already been laying groundwork for how iconic just food culture and drink culture is in new orleans and so we always like to play a little game i want to dig even deeper and give people just paint a picture for people of, of what it really represents the food scene the culture in new orleans so we always like to play a little best served on icebreaker game and we're going to call this laissez les bons to rouler let the good times roll man classic classic my dad's been saying that forever actually my family was acadian they were French Canadians, Nova Scotia came down and were in Lafayette. Uh, oh, and then that actually, the, uh, the, the, they were the distant cousin side, but the side that was connected, they went the northern route and uh, opened our first family restaurant called La Fond House, our French family, La Fond, Fond as yeah. in pan dripping. So we've been in the game for a minute. 
1900 in Little Falls, Minnesota. So wow. like that, yeah. So original Cajuns were part of the family, and then uh, and then the restaurant family started, and they ended up in California. But man, I have a lot of uh, respect and understanding for like how deeply rooted the culture of the Cajuns and then the connectivity between Cajun and Creole. I love it. I'm getting chills just thinking about it. So I'm excited to talk to an expert. When you think of New Orleans, I mean, man, gumbo, jambalaya, etouffee, beignet, po'boy, red beans and rice on Monday. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So I want you just to give us your, your top five, your starting five lineup of the dishes and give us some why on why these dishes are absolutely the bedrock of New Orleans cuisine. So starting out, you know, who's your, what's the, what's the one dish you got to start with when you're talking about New Orleans for you personally and for the city as a whole? I mean, like, honestly, I think, I think red beans and rice is the first thing because uh, red beans and rice is known, but I don't think it gets the respect that, it deserves. Um, red beans and rice was one of those dishes that, like, you know, like your mom got to go to work, the husband's gone, uh, the kids are home taking care of the house or whatnot. She can put that on and, you know, the kids are watching and, and stuff like that. And it was one of those dishes you can put on and it takes a while to cook. And so by the time my mom would get home, the beans would be done and dad would come home and beans everybody's ready to eat you know it, but it's one of those iconic like family meals that's one of those meals that's for everybody like you know and your friend come over for dinner he can have some it's one of those 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 meals that just bring people together um and i think red beans to me it's like uh like sitting at the table but as a kid, when my mom making dinner for us, and uh, I would never ever erase that or, or let that go. And as simple and easy as making red beans is what it does to people, is what makes red beans what it is. Um, it's like that that hug from a friend you haven't seen in a long time, you know? Oh, now you're preaching, man. I'm digging this for and, sure. Know, you know that that hug. You know that hug will kind of let you know where you guys stand. Almost like that hug will let you know, like, all right, it's not the same with this person or whatever. But it was one of those hugs that, all right, I can go tuck myself in the bed now. Yeah, yeah unless you, unless you know that you're home. I think. Yeah. I think another thing that you mentioned that's really interesting. I think about a lot is you said the time that it takes, and and isn't it true that the more time something takes in life generally, but specifically with cooking, the more respect we have for it because a lot went into it. Yeah. And, uh, and I think those are some of the iconic things. It's like, you know, Italian families cooking Sunday gravy with, with grandma or exactly that. Like the time yeah. that it takes to sit there and care for something is, uh, and then the unveil after all that time is, is and I think, magic. And I think also like red beans is like one of the first meals most people in New Orleans learn how to cook honestly I think that's one of the if not the one you know that's one of the first meals you learn how to perfect you know but yeah, I, like, like I hear like, that the the next thing for me would be fried chicken 
Um, I'm a fanatic for fried chicken. Like, um, if you sell fried chicken, I've been to your restaurant. You know, I've been there. I've tried it, and if I came back, then that says a lot about your fried chicken. Not saying that I do the best fried chicken or I will have the best fried chicken, but I don't know what it is, man. It's not just because I'm black or anything, but fried chicken and me, we like, we like fam for real. I can't even explain like how much I love fried chicken. Fried chicken is that fried chicken is the homie, man. That's all I can say. And I'm with you, chicken, uh, dude. Black, white. I'm I'm half I'm half Irish, quarter French, quarter Japanese. Yeah. And I'm like with you 100%. So it's iconic across the board. Now, real quick, for like technical, we're getting really deep and, and waxing poetic, but go technical. Talk about it. Is it, is it, a, is it a dry dredge? Is it a double dip? Is it cornmeal? Like give us, give us real quick the technical. How are you frying chicken? I don't care how you do it. I don't care how you do it. With all the methods you could do it. But long, if the chicken itself is seasoned, underneath the skin of that chicken, you've done it. And because uh, you can over fry chicken, you can uh, not fry chicken enough to, to achieve the perfect fried chicken, but there's that median in between that perfect and that that's it right there, you know? And it's once you salt, that, right? Salt yeah. and game over. That's, yeah. that's the single technique that you need to learn as a chef is salt. Yeah. yeah and, and that's it. And, and third would have to be the a po' boy, dude. Like, hot sauce is my favorite, but shrimp po' boy is probably right there, too. Um, any one of those po' boys. Um, it's one of those, those foods that you can get 24 hours at any day, any time, seven days a week in New Orleans. Somebody's open 24 hours. Somebody's always selling it. And... We used to be out late and chilling and you want to get something to eat. It's two in the morning. Like here in Cincinnati, like two in the morning, you basically, you stuck. Like you better go to somebody's house and get something to eat or whatever. But down there, like you can go to a pool to a corner store or, or one of the establishments that are open 24 hours that serve po'boys in the neighborhood or whatever. And that's, that's what I think the po' boy is. It's one of those, you can get those, and they're easily available. They're always available. And everybody has their own riff on some of the similar po' boys. Like, you know, some people grill their shrimp. Some people like to double dredge their shrimp. Some people cornmeal. Some people flour, you know, or whatever. But those things are always available, no matter what. And they're all good, no matter what. And... That's one of those those meals that I think is iconic, not only to me but to New Orleans as well. That's 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 about it on the pole boy. It's 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 like the perfect vehicle for just like you said that being able to have one too many Sazeracs or or yeah. hurricanes or whatever it might be, and, and then get get yourself some bread and some grease. And yeah, throw some remoulade and some lettuce on there too for yes. for good measure for flavor. But it's really about keeping yourself balanced yes. in a city That's that it. definitely never sleeps. And the 
the other thing would probably be uh, jambalaya. Um, I had a brief stint at this restaurant in the French Quarter, and they used to serve jambalaya. And I wasn't I always liked jambalaya, you know, I always did. But like, they really made me like like it. And it was probably because they served it differently. They used to put like the drumettes from the chicken wings in there for the chicken, and you would get almost like a whole link of andouille sauces. It had tassel ham in there, which I wasn't used to at the time. And they also would do shrimp. So they would have like a little bit of everything in their jambalaya. When I used to watch the, the girl that was saute cook at the time, she used to make it. And whatever she would have like left in her skillet, I would just get my spoon and I would just taste it. And I was just like, all right, that's it. I've made jambalaya similar to that ever since. I never forget, I wanted to work in the prep kitchen because it was a very big production kitchen and restaurant. And I wanted to work in the production kitchen just to see how everything was made for that jambalaya. And I did. And I was like, all right, I'm not changing my method on how I do it. And from that day on, like, I mean, like, we can tweak it or whatever. Because I even thought about taking jambalaya and turning it into a fried rice almost. You know, giving it a little twist onto what uh, jambalaya is. The story of jambalaya itself, it's almost like a, a, a paella to some people uh, or some resemblance of that. Jambalaya was just leftovers you had in your house. You put it in one pot and you make a dish out of it. And that's what I think uh, jambalaya is like one of those poor man saviors, you know? Yeah, nothing like rice meat and some gravy and you know and like le i love the leftover game there's just so many good leftover rices rice is like the best medium it's like you're either gonna make a stew or make it with rice and i'm all about that so all right i'm i'm hungry real hungry you're you're, you're winning right now that was a beautiful game i'm inspired i know people listening who are are from the area are in love with the area of new orleans and louisiana as a whole are salivating and anybody who doesn't know now is is hyped up so i appreciate that let's man let's talk more about about uh some of your people you already mentioned grandma and mom let's get into them let's deep dive into them let's talk about really who they are and the way that you channel them because i know you do i can just tell in your kitchens today so maybe start with with grandma tell us her name and then give us a little bit of the grandma isms because i know she's got some isms uh, Claudia Scott is her name. We call her Skeet, Grandma Skeet. That's what we call her. I don't know where the name Skeet comes from, but that's been her name my whole life. She's a she's a strong woman. She's steadfast in what she wants to do. She don't take no no bull crap off anybody. Um, she will still hit her kids today, and <laughs> my mom is one of those kids. And you know, um, she she's a loving person, but she also was one of those those hustlers. Like she always would be serving dinners out of her house on Fridays and Saturdays, uh, selling suppers to the city workers and schools and all these other little people in the neighborhood that would just come up and buy plates from her. I used to be in that kitchen with her. Like instead of outside playing basketball like I wanted to or doing whatever I wanted to do at the time, she made me do that with her because she wanted me to see like, there's always a way to provide for your family. And that's why she did it. 
you know? And she used her vessel of cooking to provide for her family. She used to work for other little families, doing the same thing as like a little maid or whatever, but cooking was was her thing. Every one of her kids can cook. My whole family cook. There's not one person, not one of her kids that I don't think that can't cook and you won't be mad that you're eating their food. But she was, like I said, she put me up on that stove when I was four. From then on, I've been doing it. My grandmother don't go out to eat. That was, that's one thing I don't like. She don't trust me. So when I moved back to New Orleans in 2016, and I was a chef of this restaurant called Louisiana Bistro, just hitting our stride in that restaurant. People was coming in, and we were just doing good. And I told my grandma, I said, grandma, you got to come out. Like, you know, come see what I'm doing. So you kind of understand what I explain to you sometimes. She would never, I don't, she don't care what goes on. She would never come out to eat. So my wife went and picked up and brought her to the restaurant. She came. I was surprised. I was happy. I almost wanted to cry almost because, like, it was one of those moments, like, I get to show off for my grandmother. And that's rare, especially in the, for, for me to do what I'm doing and serve her. That's like the tip of the iceberg for me. Like, I could have said I don't want to cook anymore after that, honestly. When she came, she ate. I got off work a little bit after they finished dinner. Of course, she critiqued me and threw my name all over the room. Like, you should have put a little bit more of this and that, or your gumbo, you, should, you shouldn't have a filet on the table. You should put it on in the kitchen because you don't want people to put too much on it and take all that, everything. And But no matter what she said, I appreciated the fact that she even came out and try my food. And that was the first time I ever cooked for my grandmother in my whole life. Like, you know, and that was a big moment. For me. I'm hearing what you're saying, and the whole time I'm thinking, this is a competitive family. When they cook, all of them are like kind of one up in each other, right? And there's there's like a hierarchy. Grandma yes. sits at the throne, right? I just, I can see it when I, you mentioned your own competitive nature going after that grill cook, you know, and then she's going, She's like, look, I'm not going to go out and eat because none of these fools can touch me. <laughs> and I love that confidence, that swagger. And clearly that's been passed on to you. And then even when she's critiquing you, it's coming from a place of love because she's, yeah, got, that, she's got that wisdom she's trying to pass on to you. Yeah, and, and that's what I wanted. Like, you know, I just wanted her to tell me what she thought, period. I don't care, good or bad. I just wanted some kind of validation from her. And I was able to get that. And I felt good about that. She kind of completed, like, almost all the goals I wanted to achieve as a chef, like, at, at that time. And I couldn't have been more happy. All right, so talk about mom. You already mentioned, right, that in the kitchen she's not mom. Talk about that relationship and how that set the tone for you because that went from cooking with the family to starting to be thinking about it in a professional setting early on for you. So that dynamic super interesting anytime you work with family talk about that a little bit see the thing is like i'm the oldest of my mom's kids so i was the one at home like she'll take this stuff out of the freezer the night before so whenever i come home from outside of living life she'll be like look i took this out look i want you to cook this tomorrow so that you know like when about the time i get home we can have dinner or whatever I had that responsibility, like, early on, 10, 11 years old, like, uh, from making meatballs and spaghetti to 
like watching the red beans and making sure that the red beans don't burn and all this other stuff. Like I was the one like doing all that. I was responsible for that. When I got the job, the opportunity to work with her, uh, my mom had a really good relationship with the general manager um, at the, the restaurant Garfield. Um, I was actually too young to even work in the kitchen. I, I needed to be 15, but I was 14. And they kind of bypassed that. And I got in. And day one, she was like, no, nah, I'm not mom. Like, I'm I'm Miss Wanda. And uh, or, or some other people call her Mama Wanda or whatever. And I had to kind of abide by that, but I still didn't. She's, she told me then, like, look, you go cook over here with this guy. He's going to show you what to do. And that's it. And she already knew I can cook. You know, she just never saw me in this element that she brought me into. And once I got in, it was it. And she would always push me. Like, you know, my mom was my, like, like my best friend uh, coming up. I could tell my mom anything, talk to her about anything. Um, there was nothing that was too obscene for me to talk to my mom about. And once I started taking off, like, you know, she saw me, like, rising. Cause my mom, she left the job uh, probably, like, eight months after I started and went on to somewhere else. And I was still there. And I was kind of almost, like, going into that leadership role there a little bit. Uh, management changed. And I still kept pursuing what I was going after. Like, I wanted to be the kitchen manager. And I was 16 years old as the kitchen manager of a restaurant. And I was just like shocked. And she was like, oh, you still doing that over there? Like, blah, blah, blah. Like, like yeah. Like, you know, and um, then like two years later, the, the whole company shut down. Like all the restaurants, uh, it was like a restaurant from out of Florida. They were based out of Florida somewhere. And all of them shut down. And, um, but yeah, like that was that was a goal, and if it wasn't for her, like I probably wouldn't have started when I did. I probably would have gotten started later. I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing either if it wasn't for her. And then my family never had like a restaurant or anything like that. Nobody ever wanted to cook at a higher level than what they already were. I think they were kind of complacent at where they were at. And I always wanted to do more than what that was. I always wanted to see more and do more. And if it wasn't for that job, because that job led me to the next job, that, and the next job was a step up from the job that I, I left. And um, I just kind of kept that going. So if I left one place, I was going to the next place a little bit more trained and also a little bit more uh, advanced at what I was doing. So, and that pushed me to where I'm at right now. When you got to the point when you were now looking to do your own thing, what were those conversations like with the family? Were they super excited and like ready for you to do that? Or was there a little bit of trepidation because they're like, oh man, that's a whole nother level. And they knew well, that they didn't want to get there. What was the conversation like with them? It was more like they, they were proud, you know, but also it's something that they never done either. So they had to come to me with that angle meaning like oh, you can't trust nobody uh, make sure you got to do this harbor all your recipes don't give anything out to anybody so on and so forth it was more of a joyous than more joyous than anything but right now it's like everybody's like a rooster right now like everybody got their chest sticking out and 
happy and excited and they can't wait to see what comes of it and all this other stuff. And my grandmother, though, speaking of, like she uh she really uh she really just gave me a hug. The hug said everything. Cause she didn't see me for like a year. Cause I didn't go to New Orleans for like a year. We took a year off from going to New Orleans. And we surprised everybody when we went down there because nobody knew we were coming. And my grandmother, she has a smartphone, but she just used talk on the phone. So anything I would send her, she wouldn't see it or anything like that, but she would get wind of what's going on. And when she saw me, like she gave me a hug and, and that hug just kind of let me know, like, like, I'm so proud of you. But my mom, um, she's probably more excited than my grandmother a little bit, but, I'm something my mom can show off to her friends at work, to the people that that know her. Once she got that understanding, like, you know, she was like, well, you go ahead, baby. You know how they talk down there. And that was it. And I'm just ready to, to show them, like, none of the stuff I learned was a fluke or went over my head or I don't remember, I don't know, or I don't have the history or the culture of what we do and why we do. You know, so, like, I just want to be that beacon for everybody in my family, to be the first person to do something for themselves and be successful at it. Grandma Skeet and Mama Wanda, the family legacy is living on. You taught the kid right, and uh, I love that they're still uh, keeping you you honest, keeping you motivated. I think it's super important. The why and the who is everything. It's so important. We get yeah. caught up in the minutia of what we do and how we do it, but it's why we get out of bed in the morning and who we're doing it for, who got us to this point that truly matter, right? It like anchors you and gives you a North star to aspire to. And so you got that in spades, which I love to hear so much. So I don't even know how we move on from your family because it's so good. It's so rich and steeped in, in so many great stories and so much heritage and, and legacy, as I mentioned for you. Chris Wilson, uh, myself at uh, Emeralds, man. He saw potential in me from a cook where I wasn't sure of myself because when I started at Emeralds, um, it's kind of where I got humble because, like, I've never been to culinary school or anything like that. And for me to come in and not only uh, – like I said, I got humbled because I thought, like, oh, I can work anywhere in New Orleans. I, I can work in any line and blah, blah, blah. And there is when I got humbled. And he would always, like, push me, even if he didn't know it. Because, like, in order for me to reach the status of chef here, there are tears I had to go through. It wasn't just, uh, all right, you're the next guy up or whatever. Like, you had to be well trained throughout that whole kitchen and get emeraldized and and all this other stuff. And I always wanted to be perfect for him because like he really, uh, like if he wouldn't cut slack with me, if he didn't like it, he wasn't, it would anger me, but also watching how I would receive that and handle that, I think is kind of how I, was able to move up and move a little faster than a lot of people because I didn't, whatever was wrong, I want to fix it right now. I don't want to go back and forth with words. I don't want to deal with all that. I just want to get the job done. 
and get it done right. And he pushed me to be right all the time. No matter what we did, uh, how we did it, we did it right. And without him, I mean, he was a guy that would kind of shove you in the back. Like, if he see you slacking, like, come on, let's go. Don't stop. Let's keep it moving. You know, and he's one of those guys. And I never will ever forget him for that. It, I don't know. I don't, I don't really know how to explain it besides he was probably like one of my first teachers in the field that I really love. That mentorship within mm-hmm. the industry is so important. It's so important for us to remember that and pass that along and continue to go from mentor, uh, for being mentored to becoming a mentor, I think is really, really important. So the value that we get out of that is, man, it's everything. This is uh, an important part of the show. We always like to acknowledge and, you know, we kind of nominate our, some of our unsung hospitality heroes as a way to just recognize that people at every level of the industry really, really matter. And so tell us about, I know there's so many, but tell us about that one person who you wanted to recognize uh, in that context. Who's that for you? Team Nola, that's what we call ourselves. Um, actually, uh, me and Aaron, I met Aaron in New Orleans. Um, Aaron used to work at Emeralds with me. I think Aaron was down there f- fresh out of culinary school or some sort. He probably would better tell you than I can. Because when we were in New Orleans, uh, me and Aaron weren't as tight as we were, we are now. Um, so after Katrina and going through a couple jobs up here in Cincinnati and I got to the Cincinnati and I don't know I think I was going outside for something I was leaving outside the hotel for something and he was walking up I was like whoa what's up dude I said you Aaron he's like yeah I said you worked at Emma I was like yeah and you know we kind of recognized each other then and I didn't know he was working at the hotel either where I was working and once, once he got in the kitchen and we, we was working together, it was, it was kind of like, like one of those my buddy moments, like you know, and that just never ended. And we always was tight. We always talked. We always stayed connected. We just went to a, a class on Koji uh, this past Monday, and we always pass our ideas on to each other. We always talk food. We always, we always had a good friendship after us working together in the hotel and we started calling ourselves Team Nola because we both worked at the same restaurant in New Orleans and worked at so many other different restaurants in Cincinnati together. And uh, I actually wanted him to be a part of what I got going on right now, but this wasn't the avenue he wanted to go. Um, But that's my guy. That's my dude. And uh, I'll always be be his boy, man. I'll always be his guy, no matter what. I got his back. I love that you guys are representing NOLA, the New Orleans love in Cincinnati. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you, man. Thank you, man, for having me and be able to let me say some things that I've been wanting to say for a long time and publicly. Cheers. Aaron Boham. The relationship with Jeffrey Harris. So he mentioned you guys connected in New Orleans, then Cincinnati. So talk about that for you. What was it like connecting with Jeffrey and then how your guys' relationship has evolved over the years? 
Well, I met Jeff at, we were both working at Emeralds in New Orleans at, you know, on Chapatulis, the original Emeralds. And um, I think I was there first. Um, but overall, he, you know, after I left, he definitely worked there longer. Um, yeah, we both worked that morning crew together. And, you know, we, we, you know, there was almost a brotherhood among that crew. You know, it's like, you know, it's, we didn't have much turnover amongst staff and that morning crew. It's like, you know, we were a tight knit bunch and, uh, you know, he, he was just a great guy to work with. Um, and like everyone on that crew had to learn to work, uh, selflessly. Like you never stood there and watched some other guy go down on his station. It's, you know, there was, if you were busy and someone else wasn't, they were helping you. The chef didn't even have to say it. It's like, you know, there was that respect among each other on that staff. And I think, you know, Jeff, you know, personified that he was always great to work with super respectful so he just has that person magnetic personality so easy to get along with you know so i don't know if he told you the story about getting married tell us the story about getting married okay well <laughs> jeff during a shift um i remember it because my station was right in front of where the like the sous chef or expediter stood so I was standing there prepping my station when he went to our sous chef and said, Hey, uh, I got to take off for a little while, but I'll be back. And the sous chef was like, his jaw dropped. Like, what are you talking about? You can't just leave and come back. Like we're, we're getting ready for lunch. And Jeff says, I'm going to go get married real quick. And I'll be back in like 45 minutes. And I, you know, <laughs> But he kind of put the sous chef on the spot, but it's like, how could you say no to that? So <laughs> Jeff actually did that. He left and went and got married and came back to work and work lunch shift. And I, you know, no one's ever heard of anyone doing that. That you don't, you don't forget someone doing that. So um, I isn't that the isn't that the perfect story from everything we just talked about before? Isn't and it's it? like. It's so funny how we're just, it's such a beautiful story and a sad story at the same time. Yeah. You know, it's like the camaraderie, the brotherhood, the magnetic personality. You're like, yes, yes, yes. Getting married. Amazing. Literally going to get married and coming back to work. It's so, it's so perfectly what yeah. it takes to be a part of this industry, the good and the bad at, at the same time, in the yeah. same moment. I love it. So it's like you tell someone that story and they can't say, oh, I, uh, I knew a guy that did that at, you know, some other place. No, there, there's only one person that's ever done that. Like <laughs> there has to be only one person that's ever done that. So I tell you, I tell you that story to tell you this. So, you know, I left New Orleans at the end of 2003 to move up here to Cincinnati. Um, cause I'd been in New Orleans since the beginning of 2000. So it was about four years I was down there. Um, New Orleans is great, but I kind of had enough. I want to be back closer to home, closer to family. So I moved up to Cincinnati, which is about 90 miles away from my hometown. Close enough. Um, I'd been up here for a couple years, probably th maybe three or four years by then. And I, I was a sous chef at a restaurant. And one, one guy I was talking to, one of my cooks, we were just kind of chat, chatting and everything.
and he's like, yeah, man, I, I work with this other guy at my other job. And man, he told me he, he once left his shift to go get married. And I'm like, I know that guy. (laughs) I was like, his name's Jeff Harris. He goes, how in the world did you know that? The guy's from New Orleans. He's not even from here. I was like, there's only one guy ever. It's done that. That's Jeff. I worked with him when he did that. And it was like, that's how me and Jeff kind of, we got reunited up here. So yeah, that's how we reconnected. I did not know he was in the Cincinnati area. Um, Cause he, he, you know, he had to leave after Katrina. Um, so a lot of people were displaced and he ended up up here because um, his wife at the time was originally from Northern Kentucky, right across the river. So that's where he ended up. And um, then after that, you know, shortly after I moved to another job, I don't know how long I was there before I was able to bring Jeff in, brought Jeff on board and it was great, you know, working with Jeff again. And, you know, since then we've worked together like another four times, I think. And it's always great working with Jeff. So yeah. (laughs) What a perfect story. Yeah. (laughs) That level. That's like, uh, you can't script that any better. The, that story and the whole story, you guys getting reconnected. And so talk about, seeing what he's doing now, being able to take category five and really start to put himself out there and his craft out there, and you know, doing the Finlay market. Like what's that look like from your perspective, having been such a big part of his life and career, seeing him kind of flourish in this way now? Oh man. It's like, you know, I see that and you know, it makes me feel proud of him, you know, and you know, it takes a lot of courage to just, say, you know what, I'm not working for anyone else anymore. I don't, you know, I'll, I'll, I'm going to learn on the way and just kind of, I'm going to f- make my own business and get a place and I'm going to make this happen. And, you know, that takes so much courage to do now. Yeah. I, I just like, I, I'm amazed by him. His drive is just unbelievable. Yeah. I, I am just so proud of the dude that, you know, finally, you know, it's like, I don't, I don't feel like anyone gave him his, gave him really the shot he deserved. And I kind of, and like, that's something I dealt with in my career as well. It's like, you know, I don't feel like I got some shots I deserved. And, you know, he's, it's, I'm proud of him to just say, you know what, I'm done with that. I'm going to make my own way. I want to open a place. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And he's going to make it awesome. Like, I have no doubt about it. Like the guy has, you know, in the kitchen, the dude has an incredible, he has incredible taste. He's got all the technique in the world. He, he is that people person. He understands what customers want. He does not have the huge ego to try to push um, his will onto a customer. He is going to make it work so that, he's going to make people happy. And like, yeah, I, I think I have no doubt in my mind that dude's going to be a massive success. Aaron, I got to tell you, this is why I love the platform of this show is because we're trying to always talk and acknowledge about other people within the industry is, is so, so important to what we're doing. And so for Jeffrey to spend most of his time talking uh, and gushing over other people, yourself included is so important because too often we spend a lot of times propping ourselves up and that Mm -hmm. you get to talk about how amazing you think 
Jeff is and know that he is and the things that he's going to do is so important because it's, it's about that relationship. Him thinking highly of you, you thinking highly of, of him, the brotherhood that you mentioned, so important. So mm-hmm. I have to tell you, I'm truly grateful, and I know Jeff is as well, for the level of support and admiration that clearly is coming through in your voice right now because it's so important. We just can't do it alone in this industry, and we need that level of support and people that believe in us and buy into us and you know bring us into jobs like you have multiple times for Jeff. So thank you for that. It is foundational to the industry and truly appreciate you being a part of that for Jeff, which affects us all because we're all getting better in the industry as more and more of us have the opportunity to shine. So thank you, Aaron Boehm, for being on the show. Really appreciate you. Hey, no problem. I would do anything for him. You know, th- I, I can mean, tell. this is like minimal effort, really. It's like, I have no problem sitting here talking about Jeff. <laughs> Absolutely. Any, anytime that dude needs me, I'm there. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Best Served Podcast. Subscribe to our show and connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Tune in next week to discover more unsung hospitality heroes.